Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have a special guest, Matthias Desmet. Matthias Desmet is a professor of clinical psychology at the Department of Psychology and Educational Sciences of Ghent, and he works as a psychoanalyst in private practice. Matthias is the author of the books The Pursuit of Objectivity in Psychology and Lacan's Logic of Subjectivity, A Walk on the Graph of Desire. Furthermore, he is one of the founders of the Single Case Archive. In 2018, he received the evidence-based psychoanalytical Case Study Prize of the Association for Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy, and in 2019, he received the Wim Dresberg Prize of the Dutch Association of Psychotherapy. Welcome on the podcast, Matthias. Thank you. How does it feel being a bit of an outsider in Belgium in the academic sciences who has a little bit of, to pull it mildly, questions about the corona pandemic and the, the measures that are being taken worldwide and in Belgium at the moment? Oh, well, uh, for me, it feels quite familiar as I think that I've been something like an outsider in the academic world uh, for a long time already. Um, For instance, you just mentioned my book, The Pursuit of Objectivity in Psychology, Mm -hmm. uh, in which I actually uh, claim that contemporary research methods in uh, psychology might need to be uh, revisited uh, because uh, the pursuit of objectivity in psychology Mm -hmm. actually is problematic in quite some respects. So I always, I think, uh, or for for a long time, I have been uh, something like an outsider in the academic world in this respect. Also, like as a Lacanian psychoanalyst uh, in a contemporary academic psychological Mm -hmm. uh, world, is not, uh, yeah, it doesn't go without saying. I mean, um, there are not that many Lacanians in the, in the faculty of psychology uh, at this moment. So also in this respect, I was uh, something like an outsider. I'm afraid to say that also in the Lacanian world, I'm an outsider. <laughs> because uh, not that many Lacanians have a master degree in statistics and are involved in, uh, in research. I am. So um, I found uh, that actually a pretty interesting combination because I graduated at the same university in like sociology, the University of Ghent, and mm-hmm. I was always interested in like symbolic interactionism and mm-hmm. uh, the symbolic interpretation, the subje- subjective meaning of certain facts. But there was a strong tendency back then, and maybe it's still the case now, on statistics, measurable, observable, objective kind of things that you can measure, and the whole symbolic interpretation, the subjective interpretation was kind of being given like on the sideline with anthropology. I had Professor Pinkston and stuff, which was interesting, but it was more like a side project. There was a huge focus just on the measurable statistics. How do you combine the the background that you have in statistics, which are more like objective and measurable, and the fact of more the uh, use of language, the symbolic negotiation with the psychological world? I have a background in statistics and for um, something like seven or eight years I was involved in statistical research, but I, uh, the longer I try to do statistical research in psychology and the longer I try to measure psychological phenomena, the more skeptic I became. And mm-hmm. uh, at this moment, I actually think that we try to measure too much in psychology 
and in the social sciences in general, and maybe even in the science in the science in the sciences in general. And there is too much tension or too much focus on measurement, while most of the phenomena we deal with in all sciences are only measurable to a limited degree. And they are perfectly, you can describe them mathematically, but that's something different than to measure them. For instance, Lacan tried to describe psychological phenomena in a mathematical way, but he never tried to measure them. It's something completely different. One could even, we could even say that after the first half of the 20th century, in physics and in chemistry, people started to realize that, that phenomena could only be measured to a certain extent, that measurements were, are never absolute. They are always relative. And after that, in the, sec- in the second part of the 20th century, a new a kind of science developed, complexity science, uh, complex dynamical systems theory, which actually strived for mathematical description. So trying to find the formula that determines a phenomenon rather than trying to measure it because people started to become aware that the act of measurement itself changed the mm-hmm. phenomenon that mm-hmm. they tried to measure. So they knew from then on that it would forever be impossible to really arrive at adequate and absolute measurement of phenomena. And that's why they started to strive for something else and for, for, for mathematical description. And the more complex and the more dynamical the phenomenon is, the less it is suitable for measurement. And people often forget that, I'm afraid. Uh, and in particular in psychology and in the social sciences in general, where we deal with the ultimate uh, complex dynamical systems, human subjectivity, we still try to measure too much. And of course, we can measure certain things, but we should uh, be much more aware uh, of the subjective status of all measurement. In the yeah, that system. reminds me of the Thomas theorem. If people define situations as, as real, they are real in their consequences. So the whole belief, and, and you know, that's also a huge, and I know you also have an opinion about it, that whole uh, placebo effect, the power of belief, the power of presupposition, like how much it can influence your psychology, your biology, I still feel it's like a hugely neglected aspect. Plus, we have such a belief in science right now that it's still a belief. It's like scientism believing in science, but we treat it like it's objective and belief doesn't play a role at all. But even now with all the statistics, you could even look at it in a religious sense that the WHO is the Vatican, and then you have the high priest, and then you have the vaccination, which is like the baptism and all the rituals there and the belief. So we think we're past belief, but a huge part is still based on belief. It's a right. It's a ritual. It's a right. Yeah. What, what we are doing now, I think, is something like a ritual to deal with our anxiety, <laughs> the anxiety that was lingering on in society for a long time already. Yes, I agree. Yes. Because I will drop it down below in the description. I took a look at the CDC numbers, right? A week ago. People Mm -hmm. can look this up themselves. I'll drop it in the link of the podcast. And on the side of the CDC, it says that only 6% of the COVID deaths are actually only by COVID. It's on the Mm -hmm. side. This is not a conspiracy. You can look it up. And then on the side, they say, back at the presentation in August, and they had 2.6 underlying illnesses. Now I took Mm -hmm. a look at, it's uh, beginning of March, 3.8. Oh, underlying it's illnesses. It's 3.8, almost four underlying illnesses. Yeah. So what I've been asking during this entire crisis is, is this proportionate? You even can take a look at how much chances people have of dying. And people above 80 or 85 have 7,800 times more likeliness of dying than people between 5 and 17 years old. 
So mm. where is the proportionality in this? I feel it's lacking in our response of treating this, of looking at things in proportion. Yes. That was one of the first things I noticed, that there was a lack of proportionality. And even more, that the question about proportionality was never raised in the mm -hmm. public space. That was the strangest thing of all, that mm -hmm. from the beginning, we had this very basic uh, idea that there was a virus and there was only one option. Uh, we had to move to lockdowns and then mm -hmm. we have to apply lockdowns and then apply social distancing rules and stuff like that. That a was so, what a, a social distancing, yeah. A social distancing, <laughs> yes. Yes. So I, I, I noticed that that and nobody actually raised this very fundamental and most fundamental question or even compared uh, the number of victims that uh, uh, the virus uh, could mm -hmm. claim in the worst case scenario, uh, scenario to the number of casualties or victims that the measures themselves, the lockdowns themselves, uh, would claim. Now, that was very strange because uh, and, uh, mm -hmm. immediately there were many scientists and even large international institutions such as the United Nations who warned that the number of fatalities caused by, by the lockdowns mm -hmm. could very well be much higher than the number of victims claimed by the virus, even in the worst-case scenario. So... International institution, institutions warned us, many scientists warned us, and nevertheless, uh, the narrative in the public space never really was influenced by these warnings uh, uh, and, and by these uh, dramatic scenarios predicted by, the, by many people, or by many scientists, about uh, the possible consequences of lockdowns, for instance. Um, so that was one of the things I noticed, that, that it was a very strange thing that, that nobody ever really considered the balance between uh, the costs and the benefits of the of the lockdowns. Yeah. yeah, I know you also said, and that's just me, I've almost never been scared of the virus because I saw the numbers coming in and the demographic uh, distribution and also put it into context in Lombardy, dirty air quality, wow. the second largest elderly population in the world. So even though there were the nightmare scenarios, I saw, I put it into context. I look at the demographic, I looked at the distribution, I looked at how many people normally die. So it was like, okay, it's kind of like this. But it seems like that anchoring effect in people of uh, the predictions, the statistical models, almost like, you know, numbers taking over and making decisions for people, what almost like AI will become, has kind of programmed people, set the tendency that the cognitive dissonance can't handle the fact that they first reacted that way. Because there's more and more data, especially if you compare now with a year ago, that makes the crisis a lot less than as it was in the beginning with people dropping dead in front of Chinese stores, etc. Yes, extremely strange. It's something that only can be explained in psychological terms, I think. But indeed, that is extremely strange because actually the narrative was actually created or um, put in, into the public space by Neil Ferguson of Imperial mm -hmm. College in London, who predicted on the basis of uh, some mathematical models that uh, uh, the victim would claim 40 million victims, fatalities, and actually... After one day already, some other uh, statisticians mm -hmm. showed very clearly that these predictions and these models probably would be dramatically wrong. And they proved right because, for instance, that was an advantage of Ferguson, his models. He made very precise predictions. So he said, like, by the end of mm -hmm. May, there will be 40 million casual, uh, fatalities. And uh, he even made specific predictions, I think, for, for specific countries. I remember that for Sweden, 
uh, when he, he warned Sweden that if they would apply a lockdown, there would be 40,000 people dying of COVID, 40,000 fatalities. And if they didn't, there would be 90,000 fatalities by the end of May. So at the end of May, Sweden didn't apply a lockdown mm -hmm. and they counted 6,000 people mm -hmm. uh, dead from, from COVID, so it's, which showed in a very clear way that actually the models that uh, um, uh, Ferguson dramatically overestimated the danger of the virus. And that was a strange thing, that actually the whole strategy designed to, to counter the virus was based on these predictions of mm -hmm. Ferguson. So you would expect that if these predictions prove really wrong, if, if, it, if, it, if it is absolutely mm -hmm. sure that they overestimated the danger, that the strategy would be changed, would be adapted. But that didn't happen. The numbers of Ferguson, the predictions proved wrong, but the narrative continued, continued as if the numbers were right. That was the strangest thing. The narrative was not corrected. And again, for me, this shows the overrating of the danger together with the, the lack of, of consideration of the proportionality of the, of the measures shows that uh, very strong psychological uh, processes were going on in society. The strange thing for me is also that, and they blame you that you don't care about humanity or about lives, but one, I think a lot of these decisions are made on with non-human tests like the PCR test, we don't have to go like heavily into it, but they make a lot of assumptions based on the RNA sequence. And then they, you know, the model predicts like that test, which is a non-human thing, you know, that predicts like, oh, you have Corona. These models predict like, this is what it will be. It's almost like, you know, that's what technocracy sometimes is like technology deciding for us, this fact-checking online technology deciding for us. And when we see now the things that we're lacking, for me, it's one of the most thing, things that make us human touch, play, art, getting together, freedom of speech, having a constructive debate, all these things that for me are essential in humanity. It's not that I don't care about humanity. I think they should also be taken into account, those essential things that make us human. Oh, very striking. It's very striking. It's very striking that actually the essence, the core of the human being is considered a neglectable detail in this crisis. It's considered something that um, we should sacrifice in order to secure or to avoid even the smallest risk of being contaminated by the coronavirus while it's getting clearer and clearer, I think, that all the measures, they do have huge collateral damage. They do cause huge con collateral damage, but it's less clear if they really lead up to a, a good protection against the virus. <laughs> I'm going to let my union in me, loose, and I'm interested about your point of view about this. When I take a look at this, and it's in a symbolic way, I call it a bit like the overprotective mother. If you're going to look at that symbolism of like the matrix, when you is plugged into the matrix, he's almost like in the toxic womb with the placenta plugged into his head. And normally what happens with birth is that a mature human being, like a child, is brought into the world, take risks and become a mature human being. It's being fed by the mother and then released into the world. This is the exact opposite. These are grown, mature human beings who are kept in an infantile state by the nanny state, by the overprotective mother, under the virtue of protecting him, but actually keeping them in resilient, triggered, infantile, you know, not able to cope with life, not able to take responsibility. So for, for me, it's like the 
a bit like the dark feminine overprotective mother under the guise we're doing it for your benefit, but it's actually, you know, keeping the citizens in a very infantile, immature, irresilient, irresponsible state. What's your opinion about that? Well, what you describe is uh, the core characteristic of totalitarian systems, of course. Eh? They pretend that uh, they, they, they will protect you and society in an optimal way. And to do so, uh, they have to ignore what you want yourself. <laughs> they think they know better uh, what's good for you. Yeah, I call it than, mommy, uh, mommy knows their, best. Yeah, mommy, uh, knows mommy, best. mommy knows best and there is no alternative. And that's, that's something typical for totalitarianism. There is no alternative. If we don't, if the IC units fill up, uh, then there is no alternative. We have, we have to lock down society. There are similarities between uh, the way in which uh, government acts now and, uh, and, and the, an overprotective mother. I would say like, well, a mother without a lack. In the beginning of life, a child um, uh, experiences and conceives uh, its mother as another, another person without mm -hmm. a lack. It believes that the mother is almighty and that she knows everything. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the mother in the beginning also behaves like that. And she has to behave like that. Till something like three and a half years of age, uh, a mother has to behave as if she knows everything and if, and if she's, she's always there. Or at, or at least something in the child, in the state of a child, asks that. But usually, somewhere uh, uh, in the course of the fourth year of life, a child starts to realize that the mother does not know everything, that mm -hmm. at the symbolic level, th that she does have a lack. And at that moment, the mother also progressively, step by step, has to allow the child to, uh, to contradict her, to interpret, to give meaning in its own way to the things of life. And so the child, step by step, has to be allowed some freedom some symbolic freedom, and that's indeed when a, totalitarian, when a totalitarian system arises or when totalitarian thinking arises in a society, that's what tends to disappear. The space in which a subject can make its own choice, even in the private uh, atmosphere, uh, disappears. And the state, more and more, something in the discourse of the state uh, prevents or the subject of making its own choices. That's, I think, uh, typical of uh, totalitarian thinking. You're also Lacanian, like, well, like maybe maybe I was too young to read it, but I kind of found it like funny that he was like uh, analyzing language, but he was reading so difficult to read. At least for me, it was very dense and difficult to read. And sometimes I like this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson, who says, uh, the corruption of man starts with the corruption of language. And there's a lot of like uh, using of language right now, you know, the, the cloak of language of social distancing, the new normal, you know, language is a powerful tool. I'm, uh, what's your opinion about the use of language right now and the importance of freedom of speech and voicing and speaking your truth? Of course, uh, uh, the way in which we handle language is extremely fundamental for the way in which we can be a human being. And what's striking me at this moment is that um, mainstream discourse claims uh, to be scientific discourse, uses numbers and graphs and stuff uh, in a very abundant way. But at the same time, it actually does not tolerate something that is really fundamental to science, which means systematic doubt, mm -hmm. freedom, freedom of speech, fundamental skepticism. Uh, we see less and less space, less and less tolerance uh, for, for what I think is the essence of a scientific process and of a truly scientific attitude, which is actually yeah, something that uh, the facilitation of a truly dialectic process where a thesis and an antithesis can be contrasted to each other. Uh, and in this way, uh, we arrive at, uh, at a deeper understanding of the, of the phenomena we are dealing with at this moment. There is almost no space anymore in society 
if you even express the slightest doubt about uh, vaccination, if this would be a good strategy, mm-hmm. yeah. then you are already a dissident. Then you are already someone uh, who should be banned from, from public space and from the mainstream media. So that's uh, truly a problem, I think. Uh, I agree with you that the basis of wisdom is... Uh not eternal doubt, but doubt, open debate, negotiation. It's a negotiated truth, some truth that we thought, like probably when you lived with Voltaire, probably you would think slavery would be a good thing. And now they blame Voltaire, but I put it in a historical context. They act like the PCR test is completely reliable, that these measures are working, that the lockdown has a positive effect. All these things can be negotiated about negative effects of like vaccines. It's like, you know, black and white, like this is true, this is untrue. And this is also a sign of like totalitarianism. Like, you know, that's that's what it's like, even on a moral la- realm. And what I'm really afraid of is that in the future, when we go, and I'm running ahead of things, but when they go toward transhumanism, they're going to program AI and they have to teach that AI ethics to decide what's right and wrong. And maybe they will also program it in a totalitarian way to decide beforehand what's right and what's wrong and that's like you know the watchmaker like god deciding what's right what is wrong you mm-hmm. know and what's allowed and what is not allowed and when you study history that always leads to tyranny mm-hmm. or leads to a backlash in a hegelian sense that you create a dragon that you say you fight against but you created it because you pushed it on the ground yeah absolutely i agree the transhumanistic uh, ideology is a is a real threat and a real danger we see this kind of uh, discourse and this kind of thinking uh, emerge in society uh, or intensify without really um, scientific grounds, I think. There is, we have no reason to believe that uh, this would be the solution to our problems. Uh, I'm afraid it will rather be the cause of the problems. And indeed, uh, you mentioned several things like uh, the PCR test. Uh, there is no consensus about the PCR test, definitely not. I think rather that most experts would agree that uh, the PCR test is very problematic for the purposes mm-hmm. it is used now. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, uh, or a few days ago, uh, a paper was published in The Lancet claiming exactly that the PCR test is valid to detect uh, strings of uh, RNA, mm-hmm. but not at all to, to diagnose people. And that's, mm-hmm. I think that's, that's, that's clear for everybody who, uh, who, uh, who really considers the real nature of the PCR test. So the, the paper uh, really ends up with firm conclusions stating that it would be better to stop the testing and to use the money for something else. For instance, to provide more beds uh, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, IC units. Uh, well, that's uh, the thing that yeah. I said. Like the problem is hospital beds, I would say beforehand, because it kind of follows a flu season between like November, mid-October until like mid-March, let's say. If the problem is the hospital beds, okay, let's tackle the hospital beds. I didn't mention like the masks. That's also like hugely debatable asymptomatic spread also hugely debatable it, it can be debated like in the public sphere because Ponce unique as you say like you know single-minded way of like thinking but isn't it strange that when you take a measure you want to check the effectiveness why haven't they spent a lot of money instead of like vaccines also in effectiveness of mask effectiveness of lockdown because this is affecting so many lives you want to have evidence-based science and what i see a lot is it's ideolo- ideology-based science and when yeah, you're in yeah. that ideological spectrum, then it's allowed. But it has less to do with facts or negotiated truth science than it's just like black and white science, like this is how it is. Yes, it is uh, definitely uh, ideologically driven, I think. And sometimes the experts, the experts also 
admit that. Uh, I remember virologists uh, here in Belgium, uh, yeah. Erika Vliegen, who, who agreed that uh, mask wearing is a symbolic measure in the first mm -hmm. place. And uh, then the, the Minister of Health, who admitted that the locking down uh, hotels and restaurants was a symbolic measure in the first place. So on the one hand, we could argue that there should be more research investigating the effectivity, the efficacy yeah. of, uh, of measures, yes. But I am quite skeptical about uh, it. Will the, the results, the conclusions of that research will depend on the subjective preferences of the people who do the research. Yeah, uh, and you know this, and, and th that is also what I, I think it's hugely threatening for your profession and for doctors and for scientists and virologists, because this is a crisis also of authority and expertise. So I'm Absolutely. usually doubting right now, like who I should trust because I'm skeptical, but I'm more skeptical than ever. So the fact that you can't question certain things and that there's alt alternative motives behind it, you know, you know, the, the statement, there's uh, truth lies in statistics. And yes. you have the famous book, How to Lie with Statistics, by that yeah. enough, like just manipulate the population you question, you know, or manipulate the graph or then don't put it into context. And then you can have, you know, manipulated truth and a certain perception and, you know, that perception repeated enough and it becomes reality because people think like that's the only way to treat it. And when then you have the narrow bandwidth of acceptable opinion that become increasingly narrow, then people never know that there's an outsider different perspective because it's just not allowed. You have the thought or the language police who says like, no, 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 this way of thinking is not allowed, which is mm -hmm. very dangerous. So I don't understand I why not more colleagues see like this is threatening the credibility of your profession, the integrity of your profession, of so many yes. professions, of politics, of scientists, of virologists, of doctors, medicine. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we have been dealing with this problem uh, since 15 years. In 2005, we got um, the replication crisis in the sciences. And when it became clear that actually most results, most conclusions of, uh, of scientific papers were hard to be replicated, even to be reproduced. This is a problem that, is, that has been growing the last five decades, I think, and which shows us that there is something problematic about our, the way in which we believe uh, we can know the world, uh, that the way in which we believe we can investigate the world. We are still under the illusion that true object, ob objective knowledge is possible while it becomes more and more clear every day that uh, the process of scientific investigation is quintessentially is, is a subjective undertaking. It's, it's at every step you take in a scientific, when you apply a scientific method, you have to make choices, choices which are intrinsically subjective in nature. So it's even not so much a matter of intentional manipulation, I think. It's more a matter that there is no other op option than to be subjective. And uh, of course, uh, some people, some researchers uh, deal with subjectivity in a, in a honest and sincere way. And others actually either are not aware of the subjective nature of what they do, or they, they, they really start to uh, intentionally manipulate their conclusions. But I, I, I'm sure that uh, uh, when you, that actually truly ob objective research in the end uh, is not possible. Um, you know what I also find problematic, and I got. Um numbers from like Geert Nuls, but I don't know again, like how much it was, but it was like, I don't know, 50% of the working population in Belgium are paid by the government. 
-hmm. And also in universities, they're paid by the government. And uh, then mm -hmm. the students also a bit like the national television, it's paid by the government. And people don't often attack the hands that feed them, just as the second largest donor or the biggest, depending if America uh, would sponsor the WHO, is Bill Gates with Bill Gates and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Gavi Alliance. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're not going to at least attack the hands that feeds you, right? You maybe mm -hmm. ameliorate, you know, or... You know, it plays a huge part. So I also feel that the ties between universities and public institutions and the state is so big that most of the people are not going against them or are not willing to put their reputation on the line to be character assassinated. What happens a lot, right? If you go against the narrative, they can remove you or go against you and uh, symbolic you kill you on social media or on the information platforms. Yeah, and going against the narrative is always much more difficult and harder than uh, than uh, than following the, the the narrative of course and indeed um, financial ties for instance do influence uh, research and eh? that's well known and that's why academic or scientific journals always ask you to mention uh, the financial ties you have because they know that uh, they have an impact on uh, on the conclusion drawing in the research so it would be good i think uh, if we did this a little bit, uh, if we did, if we also, if, if experts also did this during this crisis, just to mention every time they appear in public space at national television or something, that they mention, look, I have financial ties with this and that institution. I agree. It would it would be good. Yeah, I mean, that's the level also where I have the discussions. I also talked about it in my presentation that I made. Like, listen, I'm a truth detective. I want to help people think. I want to provoke thoughts. But if the people who are involved in the decision-making benefit from certain decisions, that should be highly questionable. And I see this all the time, that the people are asked for guidance and decisions. It's almost like, hey, I'm an arms dealer. And then you sit in a panel and we ask, should we invade this country? And then I'm saying, yeah, we should do it. I mean, you should think twice to listen to me because, you know, <laughs> I have skin in the game, you know, I have something at stake. But that mm. is happening like all the time. Also, I heard that the panel in Belgium, that they're all paid by the state, uh, state, you know, and there's a lot of not so much private experts in that panel. So there's a bias there, you know. I, I don't think it's reasonable. What do you mean with paid by the state? Weren't they? I, I read it. You can always dismiss like what happened of the yeah. people who were like in the panel, that the people who were like subsidized, that the, the most of the people who were in the panel or the expert panel, that they were like paid by public institutions. And so that's the pu possible. public yeah. narrative that it kind of steers like what they think, because again, they finance them, you know, they pay for their job. And I think that's yes. highly, highly problematic. And sometimes yes. I see people speaking for unions of businesses and even they say like, yeah, yeah, it's good, the lockdown, and we should continue it. And they should be speaking for the side of the people who are behind them, right? Not say, okay, no more uh, hospitals and we don't care. No, but like also take this into account. I call it like the Holy Trinity, the hospitalizations, the infections and the deaths, and that's it. It's like that, that narrow focus on these three things. Absolutely. Depression, suicide, yeah. loneliness, poverty, famine, yeah. relationship yeah. breakups, sp spousal abuse, lack of taxes, lack of income, hopelessness, the future, the way we're raising, raising children, all these things. No, we zoom in on that little corner in our house and, and we forget the rest of the house, let alone the whole neighborhood, let alone the future and the world. It mm -hmm. just seems crazy to only narrow on, focus on that narrow angle to look at what's going on yeah, yes 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 indeed i agree and that's exactly what i uh, what i have been or what i tried to explain with my uh, 
my narrative on uh, on mass on on crowd formation and mass psychology. Mm-hmm. That's that's exactly what happens, I think. But there is a lot of anxiety, free floating anxiety and discontent uh, in a civilization. The civilization becomes very prone to narratives that put forward an object of anxiety and a strategy a strategy to deal with that object of of anxiety. So all this free floating discontent and anxiety is connected to this object of anxiety, and people start to engage. Uh, to participate in, in this strategy to deal with this object, for instance, the lockdown, the so- social mm-hmm. distancing, in a ritualized way, and their attention is focused so unilaterally, so uh, exclusively on this object of anxiety and on the strategy that they absolutely are not aware of the problems this strategy is causing somewhere else in society. Uh, that's the absurdity of, of, of mass psychology and that, that people, and, and it's perfectly, uh, usually people like Gustave Le Bon and Hannah Arendt compare it to, to hypnosis, to hypnosis. Mm. And the, that's exactly what it is. Uh, also, hypnosis also focuses the attention on one specific aspect of reality. And then people, you can cut their arm, literally, literally, you can apply surgery, open heart surgery. While they are under uh, hypnosis, and they will never, they will never feel it. They will never notice it. So, uh, and the same, and mass psychology has exactly the same effect. While people are focused their attention, they are while their attention is grasped by the object of anxiety that is put forward in the mainstream narrative, they can be lose so much at other levels. It's kind of uh, like you probably read this book, right? The Master Margarita no, by Bulgakov. Well, the Master Margarita is also when the devil arrives in uh, Russia, I think it's like Moscow, and people go like mad. There's like a whole craziness. It's like a symbolism of back then in in Stalinist era. I think he liked the book, but Stalin was a crazy guy. But the madness, like like the absurdity of certain things, like the level of absurdity, it's almost like it's being taken to a level on purpose because then nothing makes any sense at all. So then people maybe look at the easy explanation or the cognitive dissonance becomes so invasive, that then people maybe are more prone to adhere to the rules because there's some things that are happening right now which are so crazy, taken to such a level. Is this a sign of totalitarianism or that focus and that people that has become so absurd that the cognitive dissonance, even if you have common sense, becomes gives so much pressure that you have to like cave in? It's definitely a characteristic of totalitarianism. And the strange thing actually is, uh, if you look at the mass psychology, the psychology of the crowd, it's something that um, Gustave Le Bon describes in a magnificent way. Mm-hmm. He says like that the crowd is never looking for freedom or what the crowd, what moves the crowd is never a desire for freedom. To the contrary, mm. what they are looking for is someone who tells them what to do. And that's exactly why the crowd always chooses as their leader a tyrant <laughs> or, or at, least, at least someone who gives them strict rules to live along. That's exactly the strange thing about, about, about the psychology of the crowd. And um, it's actually very clear if you look, or very logical, if you look how a, why people become sensitive to crowd formation. Usually, a crowd arises in a situation where there are many people who deal with a lack of societal structure. When there is a lack of structure, people feel isolated, atomized, anxious, and they start to look for someone who offers them an excess of structure. That's a strange thing. So it's like a switch from the one opposite to the other opposite. 
a complete lack of structure, rules, and rules uh, makes people long for an excess of rules. And that's what happens in crowd formation. That's a strange thing. If you want to, to manage a crowd, if you want to lead a crowd, then you have to, to offer very austere and strict and severe rules. That's what, in one way or an unconscious way, people are looking for when they are sensitive for crowd formation. Is it a bit alike, like when people have a porn addiction, that they try to fill up the void by releasing tension, which create again, like an anxious spiral or a shame spiral, and then it builds up again. And then, you know, they, they numb themselves again, because it's, it's almost the same thing that people cling to the television. It's negative for them, but it, it gives some predictability about what's going on in the world, like not the good thing, like the negative thing, but it leads to a predictable reality, a predictive reality. And they keep on looking for the things that gives them immense stress. Yes. That, that, that fills a void, but it doesn't fill it, you know, but it keeps them occupied. And they repeat that addictive hypnosis even, pattern. Even if it leads up to radical self-destruction. So that's what the, was so amazing when a Western researchers observed what happened in, uh, under, under Nazism in Germany and, uh, and Stalinism in, in the USSR, USSR, they noticed that people were radically self-destructive, even if they knew, they knew that, uh, that Hitler would, would lead up to, to, uh, to the destruction of a German population. They, they continued to follow him. Uh, and even if they felt that Stalin, uh, that conditions got worse, worse and worse, uh, under Stalin, they continue to to adore him. That was a strange thing. I kind of compare it to people who are being taken hostage, and in the end, you have the Stockholm syndrome. The funny thing is that in Stockholm, they have the most freedom <laughs> right now, almost. That mm -hmm. they think like, oh, I'm so happy that this person is taking me hostage because he's protecting me from all the criminals outside. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah indeed, stuff like that. And we also we have, I, I think, like we we still do not succeed in really. Uh, understanding what freedom means to people. For a human being, freedom is never the easiest way. Freedom is really a struggle. Uh, you have to take responsibility. You, mm -hmm. have to take, you have to take risks. Freedom is extremely satisfying after a long time because you feel uh, if you're free, if you make your own choices, mm -hmm. if you choose that you realize yourself as a subject, as a human being, and that you really start to exist as a personality and as a human being. But before you have this satisfaction, you have to struggle hard for many years. And that's what people have an almost irresistible tendency to prefer advantages on a short term over to prefer small advantages on a short term over large advantages on the long term. For most people, freedom is hell. And when they are confronted with a situation with a lack of structure, with a lack of rules, they start to long in an, in an irresistible way for someone who takes their freedom away. Mm, that's a strange thing. And that's what I often hear now during the lockdown and with the curfew preventing you from going out after 12 o'clock or 10 o'clock. A lot of people, are, uh, quite some people have, have told me like, well, yes, this curfew it's not democratic and we don't like it and so on. But on the other hand, uh, we are always going to bed early now and we do feel better the day after. So in, in one way or another, in one way or, in one way or another, people think it's easy that someone else uh, decides for them, regulates their life. 
and um, take away the burden of their shoulders of having to choose themselves. Yeah, I um, sometimes say they didn't want to go for herd immunity. They went for herd mentality instead, you know? Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Because, I mean, it can maybe sound a bit harsh, but if I would have to explain to a person in the Middle Ages that we have to lock down and change society completely for, and I know I'm using the numbers by Ianidis from the WHO, that the mortality rate is like 0.23%. Like that's, you know, the widest range that he would give to the mortality rate where on average in the West, the people who die were like 81, 82, 83 years old, which is an age, you know, and I told the comorbidities, which are natural. There's nothing outside of the ordinary. We should protect them, of course, but to donate all focus and resources of a society that are finite and come from the citizens for something that is a bit of biological phenomenon, also with like flu and bacteria, we had evolution in symbiosis with bacteria and viruses. Seems completely absurd. How can I tell the coming generations that we gave up society and, you know, reinvented society and changed everything for something that was like 0.23% mortality? How is this again disproportionate? This, this doesn't make any sense for me to be so extreme in, in treating this. Yes, I, I think nobody will be able to explain it later on. What happened now? I, I think it will be con considered uh, as a, as one of the strangest uh, psychological states society ever went through. It's extremely strange. Uh, uh, indeed, the mortality rates of Ioannidis they seem quite realistic to me. Twenty zero point twenty three percent, indeed, and the average age of the fatalities is uh, eighty three, I think, in Belgium. Yeah. Which is a little bit more than the average mortal uh, than the average rate uh, mm -hmm. of dying yeah, it's like uh, generate. Whatever, so yeah. yes, I agree that that has always been, in my opinion as well, that you cannot understand this crisis unless you realize that uh, we are under the spell of very strong psychological forces, which prevent us from considering problems in a. With an open mind. Um, I also read the classics, uh, uh, also read Ernest Becker, the, den uh, the denial of death, that in a way we try to avoid that, put it away, but in a way we want to leave behind something meaningful, as existential existentialist in me that's like speaking. But I think nobody at the end of their life will say like, hey, you know what was the best moment in my life? When I was safe, when I was comfortable. Mm, when mm. I was, you know, like somebody no. else took care of me and decided for me. Mm. Nobody will look back at their life and say, that's the most meaningful. That's the most alive. That's the most fulfilling parts in my life. I mean, life in part is taking risks, taking responsibility, failure, growing, learning, you know, making your own choices, then seeing you did the mistake, then, you know, making it up, etc. That's like being a human. And mm. I have a quote that is like, the danger is not for robots to become like humans. The danger is for humans to become like robots. Yeah, indeed. and in a way that that right for self determination, that way to not hurt people, but think for yourself. You know, freedom of speech, freedom of expression. Mm. That is at mm. stake right now, and that's everything for me. That's meaningful, and that that gives a fulfilling life. And for me, that is essentially if we want to remake the future, I want to make a meaningful, fulfilling life at the center. Mm. And we've been worshiping the altar of technology and progress, and that's the main thing, you know, and we should be running behind it, almost like Alice in Wonderland. Here you have to walk, to run twice as hard just to stay at the same place. 
People mm-hmm. are never been as anxious, as lonely, as depressed. So it's mm-hmm. not making us happier on a human level. Mm-hmm. So we're still following that enlightenment ideal, like, hey, technology and more progress and we're happier. Well, we have now years, decades of research that it's not making us happier. Mm-hmm. So why are we still worshiping it and putting it at the core of everything that we do? Shouldn't we integrate it that we have a meaningful life, a fulfilling life, a human life, and then have a broad debate about it instead of just having this transhumanism, technocracy, faster, easier, more comfortable, but it's not making people happier on an existential level. No, that's where the debate should be about. How do we want to conceive life? What are the different options? What are the different ideologies we can adopt to try to conceive a future for the human being? What future do we want? The ideological background is completely neglected. It is as if there is only one uh, ideological background which is scientific and which is justified. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case at all. There are many uh, ideologies that can uh, give rise to, to science or to a scientific consideration. And even that, science has its limits. Science has its limits. Uh, we, we should not expect too much of science. And it's, it's, it's a good thing that we try to follow reason. But if you really follow reason, if you really follow it in a honest way, then you soon approach the border of reason. And then you see that there is a limit to what can be understood in a logical way. And that's exactly what the, that, what the, the great scientists of the 20th and, and also the 19th century actually uh, concluded that, uh, that in the end, uh, uh, the real and, and, uh, and, and the reality is much more prone to poetry than to logics. Uh, that's what Niels Bohr said. When it comes mm-hmm. to atoms, language can only be used as poetry. I like it so much because he really, he said this in a very serious way. Uh, he said, fun, like, mm-hmm. when you observe <laughs> atoms, it's so irrational, the way in which they move, so fundamentally irrational, that logics makes no chance to succeed, to grasp something about the real of an atom. You should turn to, to poetry to grasp something of the essence of the behavior of, a, of, a, of atomic particles. I did actually, oh, but this, this has opened a lot of like my, my brain muscles, also probably for you, because it tackles so many areas in life. I actually did a bit of a Marxist analysis of it. And in the past, Marx said, like, those who have the power, who have the means of production, and they oppress the worker by using their labor for their own benefit. Mm-hmm. Now it's those who have the means of information and perception, they have the power and they extract the attention and focus out of citizens for their own benefit. Yes, yes, yes. It's and that, that is now a psychological game, a perceptual game where people are entangled to the web. It's also called the web, stuck to the web. And that they're being fed a prescribed narrative. And that is very dangerous because increasingly more aspects of people, their life are being tracked, monitored, prescribed, that sometimes people don't know any different, just as people who lived in the matrix, that they never knew that it just just a constructed reality that wasn't real mm-hmm. because it was all mm-hmm. that they were known. They were born into it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, yes. I, I remember uh, when I was 17 years old, I went to the movie theater to watch James Bond movie, GoldenEye, I think it mm-hmm. was, with, with, Pier- with Pierce Brosnan. Mm-hmm. And in the, be- in the beginning of the movie, someone said, I don't remember who, but someone said, the one who controls the media controls the world. 
That's true. And the one who controls the narrative controls the world, of course. And we, the, the one who creates the matrix, you could say, you could say controls the world. And uh, that's exactly what we, we are facing now. Eh? We are facing now the problem that uh, there is a narrative of which many people, I think, realize uh, that is really limited and that mm-hmm. it is not at all represent the fact. But at the same time, uh, we all feel profoundly powerless to change it. <laughs> that's the. I also think that there's a kind of false social activism. That people do a tweet, people do a like, people do a post, and they think like, oh my God, I'm doing the same thing as Martin Luther King in Washington in 1963. And it gives that false Mm. sense of like, I'm an activist. But in Mm. the way you just do it on a platform, Facebook, that's a whole other discussion, et cetera. It's on rented territory, and it also has an ideological basis that that also takes away of the organic connections between people and the real activism and the real standing up for something and creating movements. I think social media also plays a huge role in the false social activism and the remarkable, at least that's what I found, the kind of acquiescence of people to condone mm. this and not protest and stand up, despite the measures, of course. How do you look mm. at it? Yeah, I also think that it, it is a, it is a well, I, I don't think it's a good, uh, a good thing that uh, uh, people limit their actions to, to the social media, mm. because in one way or another, we are all stuck to the computer screen. We act only in the virtual world eh? while, while real life is going on uh, somewhere else. You know, before the corona crisis, I never used Facebook or something. I never <laughs> did it. But then I started, I started to write opinions and I started to think about ways to disseminate them. Uh, and I felt like, well, uh, I, I'd rather take a Facebook account and uh, get as many followers uh, as possible. But now I, I see that it doesn't really have a good effect on me. I try to use it mm. less because it's not really gratifying or, or it doesn't really, uh, it rather sucks me empty than that it's giving me uh, real satisfaction. And I believe indeed that one of the reasons is that you feel actually that your life is, uh, when it only has consequences in the virtual space, it does actually have no consequence at all. Yeah, and also we live in the attention economy, so you can be a nobody and you can have a lot of followers and your tweet gets a lot of tweets and likes. You can be invited in a studio and speak your opinion because you got a lot of attention. While in the past, to be able to speak in a studio, you had to have some credentials. You had to have some Mm. books, you know? So I feel Mm. like the discussions in the past also on the BBC were a lot more in-depth with a lot of people with expertise, you know, and they deserved their stage on the platform. But then Mm. it was based on authority and credentials. Now it's just based Mm. on attention and whatever gets you know the followers and the headlines it's also what i blame mm. the newspapers you know mm. attention is the currency and it gets like you know eyes on what they do also the politicians but it's actually polarizing people and it's not bringing out the best in the citizens even though a lot of these things are paid with public tax money yeah yeah yeah, yeah. indeed you also talked about the Sol- solomon ash experience i always found that very interesting when i read it i was always wondering like how i would react it's the experiment where you have like lines and only certain lines are an equal length. And then they go to a group and then they say like, hey, which lines are equally long? And they planted people who say the wrong thing. And then I don't know how many people, maybe 80, 90% adhered with what the other people, the planted people said, even though clearly the lines weren't as 75%. Long. 75%. Well, or only 25% consequently gave the right answer against group pressure. The experiments of Solomon Azure are uh, among my favorites in the history of psychology because um, 
they are really good uh, both at the at the methodological level, but also just very interesting and and very uh, uh, evocative. I think. Uh, what makes but, someone be able to take a stand and say like, I'm going to go against the peer pressure. I'm going to go against the social narrative. I'm really curious about the characteristics of those twenty five percent. Yes, that's a good question. What makes that some people uh, stand group pressure? Nobody knows actually. It seems mm. it seems that it is a like characteristic of a human being that cannot be gauged. That it cannot. It's hard to be described. It's actually a fundamental, irreducible characteristic of a human being to make the choice either to take the easy road and to go along with group, to avoid having to to go against the current, or to choose for truth actually, because that's that's what it is all about. Eh? Will you say what? everybody feels is the right answer or that most people feel is the right answer or will you take the easy way and um, disappear uh, in the group without ha having to to fight or to struggle against group opinion and yeah for, for me a life a life without values is no life at all so for me when something hurts my values i want to stand up for it and that's been the thing when you read the book 1984 you have the scene where they say like two plus two equals five but you yeah. know it's not five, it's four. Mm -hmm. And you would mm -hmm. have to give up your own unique perception and opinion. You have to reduce yourself by just being an obedient slave with no opinion at all to say it's five. And to then say it's five, it's like I relinquish any individuality, any aspect of myself, any critical thinking. And when I would have to do that, it's, it's, like, it's like a symbolic death of myself. I have yeah, nothing yeah, to stand yeah. for anymore. No, That's what, uh, that was uh, uh, the Talmud already says. Every time you refuse or you neglect to speak words of which you know they are true, you lose a part of your soul. Yes, I agree with that. I hope that uh, very soon people start to realize what true words are worth. What we lose ourselves as human beings if we uh, uh, neglect to speak words of which we know that at that moment, and to the best of our thinking and reasoning, or true. Yeah. Uh, but this, the experiments of Ash, they really show in an amazing way what the effect of group pressure on individuals can be. It's, it's so amazing. You know, it's, it's almost unbelievable. But at the same time, we actually see it time and time again on the news and stuff, uh, that there are you know, some of the figures that are presented, of the graphs, uh, of the some of the information uh, that is presented is often so absurd, we can only understand it in a psychological way, why people accept it and why people uh, do well, not that's protest what I'm, against I'm just it. very intrigued about because I also graduated in journalism, but okay, some people must buy into the narrative, okay, but there, there must be some people who see still different kind of information, different kind of angles, who want to have investigative journalism, and they go every day to their job thinking, how can I keep my population the most scared possible, bring disaster news, and they go to their job every day, even though they see other angles and information. I mean, of course, there's cognitive dissonance. Of course, you want to give value to what you do, but I don't understand how people can see this and then just ignore it or know it and still go to their job and participate on this on such a level, on such a scale. What psychological mechanism drive someone to be able to do that because once I would see a glimpse of another perspective, I can't unsee it. 
Like once you oh, bite yeah. from the apple, right and wrong, even though it's not a nice reality, I still want to choose the truth. I still want to take that into the equation. But that so many people keep on participating in this on a political, on a scientific, on a media level, that blows my mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can, you can look at it from two angles, I think. On the one hand, you can wonder how, how it is possible that the majority of the people refuses to see the truth. And we have to agree that the truth is a problematic concept. I mean, mm. it's not easy to determine mm. what is the truth, of course. That's also what Foucault mm. says. And eh? like, mm. tr the truth definitely exists. It's very problematic because the truth cannot be pinpointed. Mm -hmm. It's something that uh, appears time and time again on a different place. It's something that can never be formulated twice in the same words. The truth, said Lacan, is always new. Every time again, it will appear in a new light, in a new way, in a new dress. And that's a nice thing about the truth. But nevertheless, we all feel in a certain situation that there is something that is not said and that nevertheless is true. And then some people take the responsibility and try to put it into words, no matter how difficult it is. So I think you can look at it from two angles. On the one hand, we can wonder how it is possible that that many people refuse to see that something is not said and that the story that is told, the mainstream narrative is not right and that there is something wrong with it. On the other hand, we could really be surprised that there are some people who really took the pains of going against the, against the current and who tried to see what the other people don't want to see. Both things are uh, amazing in one way or another, I think. And history has shown that there always have been people like that. There always have been people who are prepared to risk their lives, to give their lives, to try to formulate these specific words of which they think that they are true or that they should be spoken against the rest of the people. Because I think people don't really realize like freedom of protest, freedom of assembly, freedom of the body, freedom of speech. So many freedoms are being retracted and some people see it now as something temporary. But I look into the future like this can become a permanent way or a default way of treating this. And you also make sure that not a lot of protest is possible because you can't protest, you can't assembly with a lot of people, like your opinion is being censored. So that makes it also problematic because there's like two narratives. When I put on the TV, it's like, oh my God, this apocalypse is the worst thing ever. And today has been like a great sunny day, drinking my tea, hey, and smiling. And there's like mm. a huge disconnect. It's like mm. they tell you every day for a year, there's like an angry bear outside. There's an angry bear outside. And then for a year, you don't see any bear. At some point, you got to ask, like, is there really a scary bear or not, you know? Yeah, some people don't. So mm. how do you see people? I mean, I've been inspired by um, only David Thoreau, civil disobedience and finding yeah, I mean, ways. Me too. It's nice, yes. yes. Yeah. How do you see ways to counter this? How do you see, somebody asked uh, in my audience, how do you break the mass hypnosis of people? Like, what are some ways to... Well, you know, the good news is that... Um, Crowd formation and totalitarianism is intrinsically self-destructive. That's mm. the good, the good and the bad news at the same time. And that's why Hannah Arendt says, like tyrannies and dictatures can continue for thousands of years, but a totalitarian system not. It breaks down in a much shorter period period of time because it in, it is intrinsically self-destructive. A dictator is not necessarily self-destructive, not at all. From time to time, there were dictators who ruled in a constructive way. But totalitarianism 
is intrinsically self-destructive, something that is already mentioned in the 19th century by Gustave Le Bon, before the first totalitarian system ever arose, eh, because the first totalitarian systems arose, emerged in the 20th century. But Gustave Le Bon already mentioned that in a very clairvoyant way, in a very prophetic way. He said, I notice there always have been crowds. And so a crowd for Gustave Le Bon is a kind of group with very specific characteristics. Mm. And so, for instance, a group in which all individual characteristics disappear and everybody has the same characteristics in a very strange way. Everybody is exactly as smart as the other. So that's one characteristic of, 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 of a crowd, according to Gustave Le Bon. And Gustave Le Bon said that crowds have always existed. But he said, what I notice is that their strength and their impact on political decision-making is growing, he said. And he said, I'm quite sure he mentioned that in a book published in, uh, in 1895, entitled uh, The Psychology of the Crowd. He said, I expect that uh, the impact of the crowd on, on the political level and on the elite, the society elite, uh, will uh, rise, will get, uh, get larger, and that soon we will, see a political, we will see political systems which actually are governed by the crowd. Because he said, up until now, sometimes a crowd, a crowd emerged, but it was immediately countered by uh, the leaders of, the, of society, uh, a prince or a king or something, uh, or, a dict- or a dictator. The thing that worries me here, and normally I would think in a Hegelian way, like it goes like in a pendulum swing, but the thing that worries me here is like, A, democracy has almost been taken out of the equation here. It's like an expert panel of like 24 people, and they just make the decisions. And it's actually not the citizens who decide things. It's actually the big, big media, big pharma, big money and those things. And I see more and more decisions being made by technology. So one thing that worries me, but this is a very disaster scenario, if we're going to track and trace more people, like, you know, more data, you have more control, predictive control. So when you can have more data about their perception, about their behavior, you can also influence their perception and their behavior. What you say, what you do, what you eat, how you move, how you assemble. And when you then give the decisions to like technology instead of people and more and more money accumulates to like big corporations, globalist institutions, it's almost like the means of resistance have been reduced because that technology doesn't sleep. It keeps on growing and it can control people and the human element is being taken out of it. That's the this, this utopian side in me, but that's another equation that didn't happen in the past with the revolutions and like the pendulum swing. No, that's true. Yes. Something changed. Technology changed. That's true. I'm, I'm afraid the years to come might be terrible, terrible years, but still they don't scare me. It's strange because I know this might be the last episode of a, a world which is leaded and which, is, which functions according to the illusion of control and manipulation. What we might see now is the emergence of the ultimate totalitarian system which Hannah Arendt predicted in, in 1951. In 1951, Hannah Arendt said, we've seen uh, the decline and the fall of Nazism. Nazism. We've seen, uh, we see that um, Stalinism is on its mm-hmm. way back. Uh, but she, she said, make no mistake, when these systems disappear, the core, the essence of totalitarian thinking will continue in society. And sooner or later, she said, and probably sooner, there will be a totalitarian system that is a worldwide system. 
she said it will be a very strange totalitarian system. It will be a monster that divorces its own children. She says that literally. She says that literally. It will be a monster that divorces its own children. And it will be a worldwide system. And she mentioned already that the, the emergence of large international institutions would contribute to this worldwide totalitarian system. And she said, like, this system won't have an external enemy, meaning that it will much quicker than, than the totalitarian systems of the 20th century, uh, it will devour its own ch children because every totalitarian system ends up devouring its own children. That's the last phase. And it always happens. And it always happens in the most terrible way. And I think that might be what we are seeing now, the rise of a, a worldwide uh, totalitarian system. And in any case, I'm sure that what we see now is, is the, 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 the intensification of, of totalitarian thinking. What we, the, the mm -hmm. kind of the thought processes that we see now in the media are, are extremely showing this, this core characteristic of totalitarian thinking, the constant illusion that there is no alternative. And if this happens, then that has to happen. And it is this inflexible, rigid logic that, according to Hannah Arendt, is the essence of totalitarianism. That, she says, when you see this kind of logic appear, this kind of logic which, which tries to convince people and which tries to convince everyone that there is no alternative and that because there is no alternative, you have to cross all ethical boundaries. And that's what's happening now, actually. It's like there the Borg. No have you ever seen Star Trek or not? No. You have like the Borg in Star Trek and they like clone mm. each other and they have like a slogan like, we are the Borg, resistance is futile. And they just yeah. assimilate the technology, take over people and just replicate, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The strange thing is that when people think about totalitarianism, they often think about the totalitarian regime and concentration camp and mm -hmm. work camps and stuff. But that is only the last step, the last step of a huge, impressive psychological process which leads to this kind of totalitarian thinking. And then when, when this kind of thinking is uh, disseminated in society and society is saturated with it, uh, there is no other option than a totalitarian leader to appear and to take advantage of this thinking and to, and to install an iron totalitarian regime. Uh, and I think what we've seen, we see the first steps of it now. And as Yuval Novak Harari said last week, I think, uh, the problem is, he said, that when people think about totalitarianism, they think they will notice it when totalitarianism is there. But most people, he said, will never notice it. They will be in it without being aware of it. And that's what happens now. If I wrote my article or my interview on totalitarianism, people really asked me in a serious way whether I, whether I was crazy, whether I, did I see Nazis marching through the streets and concentration camps and stuff. So that's, they are blind to what the essence is of totalitarianism. Namely and that's this the overtone window that it goes like increasingly like boiling the frog. Like Hitler also didn't invade Poland in just like, I don't know, a year. It was also increasingly, you know, the Jews also didn't mm -hmm. go to the concentration camp immediately. It was more like shutting down their businesses, going to a ghetto, going to another camp, etc. Yeah. And when you do something incrementally, that's kind of... It's amazing how adaptive humans are, but it's also uh -huh. amazing how adaptive humans are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the strange thing. When I see the society right now, this is not a livable society for me. It's not mm. only avoiding deaths, it's also creating life and managing livelihoods. And what people don't realize is that even if they do nothing or they don't resist, they kind of silently are voting for a way of living for the future and coming generations. 
Mm. And what I see happening, like I don't want to have my vote by condoning or going around it, what Belgians are good at it. Like I will bribe mm. someone with a vaccination mm. passport or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you're condoning, you're giving a vote for the future model of society. And I'm not condoning this, but they just on mm. the present moment feed anxiety and they don't see the long-term consequences. No, that's true, yes. Yes. And they could even be not so long-term. I think uh, we could be surprised uh, what will have changed till the end of this year, I think. Um, yeah, and it was very uh, surprising for me because normally it's like, don't touch my children. It's like so visceral visceral for like mm-hmm. mothers when you come and touch mm-hmm. their children. But even now when I see the distancing and the mask and that population is almost no deaths in that population between five and 17. And when I see what's happening like with adolescents and the youth, that mothers are even condoning this, that surprises me because we had one of the biggest marches ever in Belgium when something happened with our children with the true crisis. So I would no. think like, yeah, they're going to take a stand. These moms are going to unite at the schools. But even then it's not happening, which surprised me a lot. What is the opposite of totalitarianism? What is some way to combat it or what's some elements to stand up? Or is it just the process of enhancing the chaos entropy and then it would create order and a counter movement? The opposite of totalitarianism is definitely not radical freedom or absence, absence of rules or laws. It's the opposite of totalitarianism is a constructive, productive, fruitful way to handle laws and rules in a society. A law and a rule should not be used or should not be opposed to subjective choice and subjective differences, but it should be it should guarantee a space for every human being to be creative and to, to make his own choices in society. That's exactly what a law should guarantee. The law is exactly there to guarantee to everybody that he has a certain personal freedom. And that's what a law should be. So there should be a law. There should definitely be a law. And it can, it can, it can even be imposed in a quite radical way, I think. But it should always be imposed with the goal or with the purpose of guaranteeing to every individual that he or she can be free to a certain extent and that he can make his own choices in life and that he can exist as a human being, which means as a, as a being that makes his own choices. So the opposite of totalitarianism, of a totalitarian uh, way to impose a law, is a, a way to impose the law which guarantees freedom instead of opposing it and uh, exterminating it and, and radically erasing, destroying every uh, space in which a, a human being can be a human being. And are there limits to freedom? And what should those limits then be? Because some people say, yeah, yes. but it's, it's killing people's lives. You're affecting, you're committing violence onto other people. So that is oh. where your freedom ends. That's only true within a certain narrative and within a certain logic, I think. And uh, we have to, of, of course, there are limits to ethical, there are ethical limits to freedom. Uh, we cannot do everything we want uh, if it has consequences for the other. But at the same time, it's uh, extremely clear that human beings always are a little bit dangerous to other human beings. And if we want to eliminate uh, that little risk, there will be no human beings at all anymore because we will, uh, we will force human beings to be, as you said, a machine, yeah? for instance. So are there limits to freedom? There are ethical limits and a human being is never entirely free. I am sure that the aspiration, the, the demand of the, the striving for radical freedom ends up in the opposite. That's what I, that, that's what I mean. It, uh, it, it ends up in, in a radical longing for uh, totalitarian rulers, I think. 
But I think human beings, the first thing they have to try to become aware of is that there is a limit to their own logical understanding, to their own reason, that they are limited in their capacity to understand the world and to control the world and to manipulate the world. And they should try to connect to a kind of knowledge that is out there in the real and that will tell them time and time again in an always new way how uh, they have to or they can exist as a human being. I think what we are mainly stumbling upon now is um, upon what the ancients called hubris, human, uh, how do you call it? Um, yeah, and Tower of Babel, yeah. Yes, well, uh, indeed, the, the, the illusion uh, that we can understand everything and that uh, our knowledge that we can live our lives starting from our, from our own logical understanding of life. That's just not true. Every time again, you have to be aware that uh, the world around us escapes our understanding and that exactly because it escapes our understanding, because we can never reduce it to the categories of our own thinking, that we have to show the true respect uh, for uh, other people, for the world, for the things in it, uh, because we have to be aware that something there, out there, can never be reduced to how we think and that we always have to listen in a careful way and try to hear what this otherness is trying to tell us. Yeah, and that's uh, the opposite of like hubris, like humility, right? Like humility towards like nature, that we're a part yes. of it and that we're lucky that we have so much control and like comfort. Like whether you're a Jungian or a Freudian, like the immense power of the unconscious, the irrational, how it can control us, how it can possess us, the immense atrocities, but also fantastic things that mm -hmm. humans did. That's why I read about the evil, to become a better person, to understand that part in me that could become like that, to be more humble, to integrate my own bad parts in myself. And that makes me like, you know, trying to negotiate life with my own ethics. But I think that's a valuable quest. That's mm. shedding light into the dark and you might not see, you might see things that you don't like, but it illuminates things for me. It puts mm. things into perspective. And for mm. me, it gives a much more holistic approach. And instead of devouring me or making me destructive, it makes me more humble. Pushing of them course. in the dark, under the yeah. rug, ignoring them. That then festers and that breeds yes. a lot of evil. And people often think that it's the opposite. Yeah, indeed, I agree. And it even leads up to a different relationship with dying and death. I, I noticed that. If you accept that you cannot know everything in one way or another for me, it gives me the peace and the calm to accept that one day my uh, existence here on earth will end. It's strange. The, the moment I started to really accept that my capacity to understand was limited, it's fine, was, also, right, yeah. was always the, also the moment I tried I started to be able to accept uh, that everything ends uh, and that, uh, that, that my life uh, would end one day just because I, yeah. I yeah, it's also strange, this whole crisis. On one hand, it gave me an existential shock, but in a way I had this whole Nietzschean birth, like standing for my values and reinventing my values. And yes, a part yes, of yes, me yes. also feels alive because now is a time mm -hmm. that they aren't taken for granted. I have to stand up for them. So it's like a weird mm. mixture of being in shock, but also feeling immensely yeah. alive because I can stand up for something that has a lot of meaning to me. Absolutely. If people want to find out more about everything that you do, where can they check out more material of you? Oh, there are some videos on the internet, some interviews. At least one of it is translated, a video on a mass psychology and um, anxiety and mass psychology during the corona crisis. 
And also I wrote uh, the two books you mentioned. They are written in English. So uh, they are open to an international public readership. That are the main sources uh, where people kind of find out about uh, my work, I think. Uh, my books. Then, of course, my articles on Web of Science, but they are more technical articles, which are usually less interesting, I think, for someone who is not really uh, an academic researcher. Uh, I think my books and, and some of my interviews uh, will be uh, the major resources, I think. What is the last message to the people who are wondering, like, what can we do? What should we focus on? What is something maybe in uh, the social sphere, in the individual sphere or psychological sphere that you think is worthy that people focus on right now? To uh... For me personally, I think it's so important not to fight against something, but mm -hmm. to start to, start to, to wonder uh, what the alternative is for this kind of society which led up to the corona crisis and which intensifies during the corona crisis and of which many people feel that there is something wrong with it, that there should be an alternative. And I think really in a peaceful and calm way, starting to think how we could lead a life uh, that is mo more worth living, that is led uh, according to other principles and if possible, really leading that life, really trying to do something. I started to grow my own vegetables in my garden here during the first lockdown, and it's so satisfying for me. Uh, it's, it's really. Uh, and then because I also started to think like, well, okay, but what's wrong with this society and what's wrong with the economic system and what's wrong with our production system and stuff and what's wrong with our relationship to nature? And one of the first conclusions that I, 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 I drew was like, well, actually, Maybe it would be better if everybody tried to work a little bit with his, with his hands close to nature and try to get in touch with nature more by producing a little bit of his own food. And uh, uh, this was one of the most, uh, the best decisions I made during the last years, I think. It even gives me, I even want to, want to go further in that direction, I think. I like it very much. So I think whatever you do or whatever you want to do, but I think it's not a good idea to define your life too much in a struggle against something else, it's better to try to define it in a positive way and to really do, take steps uh, to lead a different life because it's possible, it's possible. And, and that's the ultimate solution to the crisis, I think. Uh, people who really offer a true alternative to the, the dead alley uh, we find ourselves in now, I think. Yeah, I think it's a meaning crisis and I think this postmodernism of deconstructing things and this anti-mentality, I also have a saying mm -hmm. that if all you see is the enemy, you become the enemy yes. and then you rebel against something and you keep it alive because that gives you the identity of keeping the enemy alive. So fighting for something, standing for something, cultivating something, civil disobedience, standing up for something and creating your little Walden hut <laughs> like yeah, yeah, Henri yeah, David yeah, Thoreau. Yeah. I liked it. I liked it very much. Torau has his Walden hut. Yes. In, in the yard yeah. of Ralph Waldo Emerson, I think, like I'm going back to the classics. I think it's also good yeah. to read the classics, to know. Yeah, I also read it. I also read Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's so beautiful. His uh, little essay in nature, for instance. Yeah, on so nature beautiful. and on friendship. Yeah. Like really yeah. read it. It's like beautiful and it's more it's, active yeah. than ever or on liberty by John Stuart Mill and the classics. Yeah. So. Thanks so much for being uh, a voice of reason and the willingness and the bravery to stand in the middle. Because I know a guy who reaches out in the middle gets shot at the most by both sides. And it uh, demands bravery and courage to stand for constructive debate. And it's been an 
honor to have you on the podcast. Keep uh, doing your thing and fighting for uh, the good cause, Matthias. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Philippe, because uh, all pleasure was mine, actually. I liked it very much to talk to you. And I also, uh, I, I noticed that every time uh, I, I, I talk with someone, you also invent yourself a little bit. You say things that you didn't expect to say and you discover new things. So uh, That's the fantastic thing I like about it. You negotiate the truth. You bounce off ideas. You correct. You get feedback. And suddenly you create a space to get new ideas and you make connections that you didn't thought of before and that's just wonderful to do it that way and have that freedom of speech and expression so that's what i love thought provocateurs like us they're necessary and if anybody agrees with me that is not right because i want people to think for themselves and make up your own mind because that's the cause of what i do and that's the purpose of this podcast an evening when everybody agrees is a lost evening said uh, einstein amen Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe, share, and leave a comment. And if you're a coach or consultant and you want to scale your online business or maximize your productivity, check out the show notes to find out more about Philip and his coaching programs. Rent over.